This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Something special for you this week, a recording of an event I did with Ed Balls, former Shadow Chancellor and now star of Strictly, and Philip Webster, former political editor of the Times, who worked for the paper for 40 years, where we spent a terrific evening with 300 Times readers covering everything from keeping Britain out of the Euro, the state of the Labour Party and the lumber. This is part one of the event recorded live at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Welcome here to this uh, terrific venue for what I'm hoping will be a fascinating evening covering uh, everything from the politics of the 1970s to the lumber. Uh, I'm Matt Shirley. I'm the editor of the Times Red Box. My main job is getting up very early in the morning to write uh, an indispensable guide to what's happening in politics, uh, which is in your inbox, hopefully, when you get up every morning. If you haven't signed up already, uh, you won't be able to leave the building until you have. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box email, and I'll be doing that again later. Uh, We are also live on Facebook, so please don't storm the stage. Uh, because that will go viral and it'll be all embarrassing for all of us. We are also using the hashtag Times Plus, that's P-L-U-S, not the plus, uh, just to make that as complicated as possible. Uh, and I think that's all of the housekeeping we need to deal with. We're delighted to be joined by two, two best-selling authors. Uh, I can't claim to uh, have written a book, uh, but I'm delighted uh, to be joined by uh, Philip Webster. Um, the well, no, hang on, let's 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 stick to the script. Let's stick to the script. We'll start with Ed Balls. We'll start with Ed Balls. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll completely lose my way. You'll have to guess who the other one is in a minute. Uh, so Ed Balls, of course, started out as a journalist, which we'll um, hopefully uh, touch on this evening, uh, as lead economic writer at the Financial Times, uh, before being lured into the idea of doing things rather than just reporting on other people doing them. He went to then to work for Labour Shadow Chancellor Gordon Brown in 1994, and was by his side for the next uh, more than decade, speaking to him every day for 13 years, a job that not all of us would want. Uh, he then became an MP himself, in 2005, uh, later Children's Secretary, and then uh, in opposition he ran for leader before a brief spell of Shadow Home Secretary, Shadow Chancellor under Ed Miliband, and then of course the shock of losing his seat last year. Um, I don't really know what he's been doing since then, so hopefully we'll be able to, <laughs> we'll be able to touch on some of that uh, as the evening goes on. Ed's book, Speaking Out, is available in all good bookshops and several bad ones. 
And uh, Philip Webster also has a book called Inside Story. Uh, Phil uh, started out on the Eastern Daily Press, is that right? Absolutely. Before joining the Times as a result of his famously fast shorthand, uh, which would be a very niche uh, Times Plus event if it was all about shorthand. But uh, it was uh, Phil's famously short, fast shorthand was gotten the job at the Times, where he then spent 43 years, including 18 years as political editor. Uh, and he, he covered it all, and he covers it uh, in great detail in his book, from the night Michael Heseltine swung the mace around his head, uh, the night the Callaman government fell, the day Sir Geoffrey Howe brought down Margaret Thatcher, the day Tony Blair said farewell, the night MPs voted for war in Iraq. I've just realised that's, that's in the wrong order, isn't it? And, uh, and then, of course, the extraordinary rise of Jeremy Corbyn. And he even then, having retired, uh, ended up covering uh, Brexit as well uh, in his book, which we'll touch on. And Phil launched Red Box, and I then inherited uh, the mantle of getting up really quite early in the mornings uh, to, uh, to do that. So I've got Phil uh, to blame for that. Um, that was really why I retired, of course. Yes, but, you know, yeah, I'm, I, feel, I feel like I'm ready to retire as well. So, what's interesting is that you're not just here because you have two people who've both got books out and you, your paths never cross, because actually you both know each other very well. And it's, I think what's interesting is the way that your paths uh, cross at various particular points, whether that's football or politics or you were strictly on Saturday night, the curse of Phil Webster. Yeah. Uh, um, to see it in. So let's, let, let, just, I don't know who wants Thank to... Thank you, Phil. <laughs> I don't know who wants to start, but just talk me through how your paths first met, because you've got so much in common. Well, I first knew Ed, he was still, I think, on the FT when it came to my notice that he could play football. I used to run an all-stars football team. Uh, all-stars, you say? All-stars right. football team, right? Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> um, and um, when I got to know Ed, we discovered within about 25 seconds that we were both Norwich City supporters. I didn't know until then that Ed was born in Norwich. Um, and I suppose we became friends from that moment. Um, but, of course, he then went to work for um, Gordon Brown, uh, then an MP. I, although he was been a friend all those years, I had to treat him as I would treat any other source, advisor, MP. Uh, I don't think I was lavishly. Ever, yeah. <laughs> um, Things there are they aren't there, so lavish now. I can assure you. There them. are in that book several uh, uh, several um, examples of stories that that I wrote that Ed didn't like. The fact that we were friends didn't stop me writing what had to be written, as you'd have exp you'd expect from uh, uh, a political journalist working for the Times. Uh, there's one classic story where. Um, uh, I did write a story that the Treasury did, just did not want to see, and it started with Charlie Whelan calling me, then Ed, and then at just after midnight, Phil, it's Gordon here. And th that happened on a particular story in 97, which I'm sure you remember. Ed what, didn't what, try to talk me out of it. What was the story? It was a story, uh, the IMF had um, done its first report on the early months of the Labour government in 97. I was given an advance sight of this by friends at the Treasury, uh, and the Treasury thought the story was that um, the IMF had said that Labour was running the economy brilliantly. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I read through the report and found that the IMF was also saying that the Labour government might well have to put up taxes quite soon. I thought that was a better story, and that led to that chain of events. He didn't, Ed didn't try and talk me out of it. He, being a journalist, he knew. He made a duty call. Gordon had a good go, and I stood firm. 
And Ed, what was it like for you being on the other side of that fence of being friends with Phil, but also having to deal with that well, relationship? I um, was born in Norwich in 1967, and um, it was, I mean, to meet the man who wrote the authorised biography of Kevin Keelan. <laughs> he was a Norwich City Goalkeeper, Norwich, yeah, for the, the benefit of anybody who doesn't know about Norwich football. <laughs> <laughs> and the great moments of my life. It's not Kevin Keegan, uh, just to be clear. <laughs> Kevin Keelan. Keelan, yeah, there we are. He was actually known as Kevin the Cat Keelan. <laughs> and, um, and Phil was, I think, a Norfolk reporter at the time and wrote this biography. I, I, had to, I joined the Times, but when I wrote it. Yeah. I'd wrote it during the Times closure. OK. Yeah. And, um, and then we did... Um, I think I actually played football with you for um, the press against the, um, the MPs and yeah. then for the MPs against the press. Yes, you, t- you turned. The thing, yes. the thing, the thing about the, <laughs> the reason why um, Phil's is um, such a fascinating book is not only because he's been here in, in politics for so long um, and written um, so many fabulously brilliant stories. Phil had the exclusive about um, John Major's um, affair with Edwina Curry, for Don't go example. My script again. Um, he, he's, He'll tell us later um, <laughs> what his sources were and whether he was, um, no. whether he was, <laughs> whether it was first-hand or uh, second-hand. I wasn't in the um, room. Whether John Major popped out for a curry, but um, <laughs> but oh, but oh dear, but, <laughs> old joke, old joke. But um, the thing about Phil is that he, um, even though he had, um, you know, people he had friendly relationships with. Um, he was somebody who was respected by all sides of politics, um, by Labour and Conservative, um, or even, the even bigger divides, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. <laughs> he was um, respected on both <laughs> sides for being fair and scrupulous. And um, if Phil wrote a story, you knew it was, um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was correct. And he didn't take a punt. And he wasn't somebody who, um, who made things up. And um, you know, Phil you know, has a. I mean, it says on the back of his book, um, you know, some great tributes. They're correct. He was the journalist of the highest um, integrity and trusted on all sides to be fair and scrupulous. And I think in modern media, that's really important. Right. Well, that, that's the end of the loving, I think. I, mean, <laughs> no, I don't think we want any more of that. Uh, let, let's go back because you, uh, Phil, you touched on it a bit about how you wrote this, the, the book of Kevin Keelan. Uh, when the Times was closed. And actually, Kevin the Cat, Keelan. Kevin the Cat. Um, uh, and actually, you, you touched on the book about how you wrote the last Times splash from... Yes, I mean, I wrote... Raising the, Road, and then the first one, when the... Yeah, the when, Times when, the Times, when the Times moved to uh, Wapping from Grayson Road, it was in the middle of the Westland crisis, if you remember the great row, uh, which prompted Michael Heseltine to walk out of the Cabinet over whether it was a European or an American manufacturer. And the last splash out of Gray's Inn Road was uh, Leon Britton under pressure to resign over Westland. And then overnight, uh, virtually overnight, we, uh, we, were, we were... On the Friday night, I was... On a tr- Leon Britton had indeed resigned on the, on the Friday after I wrote that Friday splash. That's a relief. And I was waiting on the, tra- waiting on the uh, platform at King's Cross to catch him and go with him north. In those days, obviously, no mobiles, but I rang the office and they said, don't bother to go with Britton. We're not publishing tonight. Um, and I said, why? They said, just come to the office. And I ran from King's Cross down to Greasin Road to see what was going on. 
And that was the point at which the editor of the day, Charlie Wilson, stood on a table, shaky table, and said, Time's not publishing tonight. Times will be published on Sunday night from Tower Hamlets. He didn't say Wapping, he said Tower Hamlets. I, didn't, I thought, where the hell is Tower Hamlets? Um, <laughs> and um, looked up a map, found my way to Tower Hamlets on Monday, on the Sunday morning, walked through the um, picket line, which wasn't pleasant because there, I knew most of the guys there. I'd worked with the printers for several years already. It wasn't nice. And then I wrote the splash that Sunday for Monday, uh, which was Thatcher's fight back over Westland. She, she was really shaky. It looked at that point that she might go. Things were so, so bad. There was a big row over the leaking of a, 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 the Solicitor General's letter. And um, it, funnily enough, it was during that, while I was, we, we had no telephones in the office on that day. I'd never used a computer in my life. Uh, Murdoch had sent over a team of uh, women from America to show us how to use computers. And that was the first time I'd actually sat at, a, sat at a keyboard. My only source for the day, as I couldn't phone anywhere, I couldn't phone politicians. Why were there no phones? Because they hadn't got oh, them in working been, properly. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, and, uh, there's efficiencies. So this. there was a television that worked, and I was looking at the television, it was Douglas Hurd, who I think was then Home Secretary, and he was saying how Thatcher was going to fight back against Heather and all that. This chap came beside me and said, that guy's good. And I said, yeah, it's Douglas Hurd, and it was Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch was on the floor of the Times to see, see us through on that day. And that was the first time I'd met Murdoch, in fact, and it was quite, quite interesting. So yeah, I did write the first, the last and the first splashes, yeah. Although, if you think about that story, which is um, just that, that little point you made there, I was a first year undergraduate at the time at university, so I was, um, but even though there's a television in um, the, the newsroom, it only would have been relevant for, for 10 minutes twice a day, pretty much, because there was no rolling news, there was no Sky News, there was no News 24, and actually, um, in the absence of rolling news and a mobile phone and a telephone, it must have been quite hard to have any idea what the hell was going on. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I mean Matt has it so easy, you know. In, in, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's a piece of cake these days. You know, you've got a, you've got a phone. You can you can, you can text your stories on. Um, uh, you, you've got email. You can email from anywhere. You can email from being on the tube, whatever. Uh, in those days, you had to find a phone. And without, I, I mean, there's another story in there about how I got lost in the jungle with um, with Neil Kinnock on one occasion. Um, and uh, there was a lobby team of twelve. We 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 landed at the wrong airport in Zimbabwe. And the, the, the welcoming party was at, a, a, at an airstrip further up the, um, up the mountain. And we got this fantastic story, because Kinnick took on these guys who took us on with their Kalashnikovs. They had no idea who this, this flame-haired bloke in a bomber jacket shouting, in, uh, shouting at them was, and it was Neil Kinnick. And um, they locked us in a, in a room, and Kinnick then said, right, boys and girls, we're going to... Um, keep the spirits up, and he started singing Jerusalem. Um, and the sound of Jerusalem, the strains of Jerusalem went out over the... Anyway, coming back to the subject, Ed, um, we had to agree then, do we try and find a phone here in the bush, or do we all agree that nobody tries to get this story out until we get to a hotel Maybe. where we can file it? And we did. Three and a half hours, we were aching to get this story to the world. It was the lead story in every paper that was covered. 
because, you know, opposition leader held at gunpoint in Zimbabwe is a good story even today. Um, but we hadn't got that. Uh, like it, like it. Um, and we just hadn't got the technology to get it out. So to answer your question, I've got another story out of my book out. Yeah. yeah. So Gordon and, Brown had the first mobile phone I ever saw in 1994. It was just like that. And um, it was quite a lot of effort for him to throw it then, presumably. <laughs> but interestingly, not only is journalism totally changed, but also the way that politics is done, in the way that you could stop a story getting out, or the speed that politicians had to have to react to things. And you're now, you know, you're an accomplished tweeter and Facebook liver and all those things. But that's. You, you, you were seeing it from the other side, but technology has changed the way the politics has done as well. Yeah, it totally has, and it means that um, there's so, so much more um, commentary and opinion and reaction. And um, even when I started, it was in the early days of BBC outlets competing against each other for stories, because by that time you were starting to get the very early stages of Sky News and then News 24, and if you could be, be first on BBC Breakfast and get the story moving and you could uh, and set the agenda rather than the world at one, but um, that has just hugely accelerated um, since... I, I personally don't think the fundamentals have changed, um, but um, the pace and the kind of volume. And um, back in those days, if you wanted to get something on the Today programme, then you needed to... Um, to have it in a newspaper in advance. And so uh, the, the newspapers generally led the broadcasters, Still whereas I think in, in I'm less so less now. So, yeah. Less so now. To what extent do you think that Twitter uh, leads the, the, broad, the print newspapers and the broadcasters or just creates so much noise that actually people turn to newspapers and broadcasters or filter it out? Is it, is it helping or is it a hindrance? Is it uh, just something that goes alongside it? What, what I think, I think, social media I think it would really, really accelerate the news cycle um, and move things on very fast. A good example of this was um, David Cameron did an interview um, with uh, the Sunday Telegraph with Paddy uh, Hennessy and I think Matt Dancona, where he said that looking across at me um, in Prime Minister's questions, um, sometimes he thought I had Tourette's, um, which, which was quite a startling thing for him to say. And um, the Sunday Telegraph, I think, dropped at 8 o'clock. Um, by um, 9 o'clock um, on Twitter, there were um, activists in the dis disability world saying this is an outrage. By 9.30, already there were people going on to Sky News to comment on what the Prime Minister had said. It wasn't really about me, it was about disability. And I think it got to, um, by midnight, so this is, this is the day before the paper has actually even dropped. In, in shops, yeah. The Sunday Telegraph have to change their headline to Downing Street apologises for Prime Minister's comment. And by the time he went on to the Andrew Marr programme, where the Prime Minister had, David Cameron had, a whole story he wanted to talk about, instead the news line out of it was him having to repeat the apology to Andrew Marr mm. that Downing Street had issued the night before on a headline for a newspaper which at that point hadn't even been published. And that all happened because of, because of the way in which Twitter accelerates the, um, the news cycle. In the old days, the paper would have dropped, the Prime Minister would have yeah, not said anything absolutely. about it, the reaction might have happened by Monday, it would have rolled over a couple of days, where in the end, I think you might have reached the same outcome, potentially, but what social media does, uh, one thing social media does is hugely shrinks, um, down, shrinks down the news cycle and moves things on. So you can have you know, a new start and a new start and a new reaction over the course of um, 
hours. It makes it much, much harder for, for papers um, if you are thinking of the physical product because um, things move on so fast, which yeah. is why these days, you know, the Times and uh, other newspapers will be, will be updating their front all through the day. And in a, it, what's actually in the physical paper is only part of what you think about as a journalist, whereas 20 years ago, that was the thing that you thought about. And I think there's a, there's a big difference at the times of the judgment that's made when somebody's buying the paper, it needs to be either adding something, whether that's analysis or moving a story on. It can't just be what people have seen a million times on Facebook. It can't be Twitter. straight news. I mean, yeah. in, in my sort of, in recent years, there's absolutely no doubt that Twitter was my fastest source of news. Totally. And that's because of the way journalists operate. Now, j journalists are as competitive as they ever, ever were. And if you're at an event, you want to be the first to tweet that out. You don't want to be the first to get back to your office and write it. You want to get that out there and be the journalist who got it out there first. So it's changed everything. It, it, you know, it, it's also, I think it's also made generally politicians feel that they're, they're, they're taken less notice of now than they, than they were in the sense of what they used to do, speeches to the House of Commons. When I started, you know, we had this team of 12 covering Parliament, covering what was going on. Just on the Times? On the Times. Yeah. Uh, there were 12 gallery team, not all reporters, there was editors as well, just covering the proceedings in the Commons and the Lords. Um, later, the European Parliament, there were just three in the lobby. T today, there would be just lobby and no, nobody covering the how, proceedings. How much space was that taking up in the paper, covering what was just happening in the Commons? It was always a full page, eight columns, a very small print with no ads. So it was a lot of words. It was a lot of words. Um, and it was sort of a mini Hansard in those yeah. days when, when I joined it, which is why you mentioned I had to have quick shorthand in those days. But now, no paper at all. Uh, and, th and that, I think, is because of what Ed said. You know, the, move, the world has moved on so quickly. Nobody wants to sit around wanting to hear what somebody says in the Commons at eight o'clock at night. With, eight, with any luck, somebody might go in to hear the wind-up speeches, but a speech made at eight o'clock is no good to anyone. An interview on the Green, outside Parliament, at five o'clock is worth a hell of a lot more to an MP. Well, people still joke now that the best way to keep a secret is to make, announce it in the House of Commons, because nobody will notice. Yeah. And yet you do it on the Today programme, and then it becomes yeah. big news. Uh, before we open up to questions, I feel like we need to sort of pick through sort of both of your greatest hits. Let's start with Edwina Curry. Uh, because we've already, um, we've already touched on her. But talk us through, Phil, you, you broke this story, but actually technology and time difference and all of that almost scuppered it. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it, it's, a good, it's a good chapter in there if you haven't read it. But I don't it, know if you um, know, Phil's got a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, Edwina Curry wanted her diaries to be serialised in The Times. She wanted the diary, I, I mean, I think she wanted them to have the cloak of respectability. A publisher uh, came to the Times. Clearly, the Times wouldn't pay as much as the Mail. The Mail would pay four, to, four or five times more than us. Uh, publisher came to the Times. This with is before she was on Strictly Come Dancing. Absolutely. Was she on Strictly? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Went out the first week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> well, I'm just being the paper of record for the evening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that your, your new party trick now? So you <laughs> name the celebrity and you say which week no, 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 What I'm saying is the mail would have paid more post-Strictly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's my point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's not all about Strictly. <laughs> it, it, it is. I had to read these diaries to see what I thought. And uh, the editor was fairly... Have a read, Phil, see what you think. And I read through them and, and I thought, God, this is... It did happen. There was an affair between... Uh, John Major and uh, Edwina Curry, and uh, I knew Major extremely well. He'd been a, you know, somebody I spoke to from the moment I joined the lobby. And um, so the editor, who was Robert Thompson at the time, said, right, we'll run it. Um, but he made a very important stipulation, which was that he wouldn't run a word until I had got in touch with John Major and told him that I was about to ruin his, his world. Um, and... Um, uh, which I think was only fair. The, there was an opposite view from the, the lawyers that um, if we were sure of the story, going to John Major early, before this story was published, could lead to him taking out a privacy injunction under the 98 Act, and this was in 2002, he could have done. But there was no thought, the editor said, I'm not publishing it until you've got him. The day came, it was a Friday, um, and um, I went in the office, I wrote it up, I had all John Major's numbers with me, and that was about six different numbers. And I had to sat there thinking, when do I call him? And I left it quite late, five o'clock, 5.30, tried every single number, no John Major anywhere. Um, and nobody answering the phones either, and I began to think the world has conspired against me. Um, and I got frantic. I was ringing John Major's friends all over the world. I rang somebody in Spain. I rang somebody in France. Did you think I you... knew? 
People who I knew to be friends. you might be in some dodgy hotel in Bayswater? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, they all said, why do you want him? And I couldn't tell them. And um, anyway, I finally called his, uh, a London office at about half past seven. I, by then I was near panic. And somebody picked up the phone who'd not been there all day and, and said, why do you want him? I said, I can't tell you. And um, <laughs> I just can't tell you, but it's life or death. I must speak to him. And by magic, about 20 minutes later, the phone went, seemed very distant, and it was John Major's special advisor calling me from Chicago. He was in Chicago making a speech. And I, uh, at this point, I had to say, can we stop him making this speech? I need to tell him something. Um, anyway, the rest is in there. So what, um, what, what um, happens? There? Did you speak to him or did you tell the special advisor? I, the rest is in there, man. You, you know. Oh, terrible. Um, Do you think the special advisor knew? I got the sense that the special advisor thought that there might be a story out there, but I, it, it, was hard, it was hard to tell. It was hard to tell. The special advisor, just to fill in the story, went and consulted John Major, came back to me and asked if they could have 20 minutes or so. And within 20 minutes, I had a statement uh, from him in, in which it is now recorded. He said, it was the biggest mistake of my life. And I thought, oh my God, that's, that's Monday's story now, because I knew that Edwina, who was at this point hidden in France, wouldn't take too kindly to him saying that. But it did mean that I could then call the office, push the button, and the paper came out. Presumably and, the, um, and Norwich beat Preston the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably the um, security people in number 10 must have known. I don't think so. I they, don't think... They were supposed to be in charge of the Prime Minister's security. They could not know where it was. It didn't happen when he was Prime Minister. It was before he was a Prime Minister. Uh, it was when he was a, uh, an MP and then a junior, junior, junior minister. minister. Junior okay, whip, fine. actually. So he didn't uh, carry on at all when he was Prime Minister. The, the, whips, the, whip, the Tory whips office has... <laughs> yeah, the whips... Has a black book. This sounds like a much better story. Yeah, I yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> The Tory whips pride themselves on knowing about everybody's peccadillos, little secrets, this, that and the other, and they keep it in a black book. There is a black book, but they keep all these There's little stories. There is. There is a black book. And John Major... They say, John, they, they say there isn't now, because they say is. the last thing you do is you write it down. Don't ever write it, it down. Oh, right. Have you seen it? I've been told there is it. There, there was, certainly at that time. But John Major, who was a whip at the time, managed to keep himself out of the whip's book, and that probably was quite an achievement. Well, there we are. But did, if you want any more out? gruesome details about all of that, that's all in... Uh, Goodness. But otherwise, all... it's a very serious book, with all very serious... <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Ed, we can't not talk about Gordon Brown, because you're... OK. Uh, from the moment you left the Financial Times, you went to work for him, and this I is did. in 1994. Yep. So, a long way to go to the 1997 election. Talk us through... Because there is a, there is a, there's always a caricature of politi politicians, but there's a, there is a caricature of Gordon Brown. What's he, what's he like to work for? What was, what was your experience of being I with think, him? Um, the thing about Gordon was that he, he had this huge sense of duty. Um, you know, he was the son of a um, Scottish um, Church of Scotland minister, and I think he, he, he always felt that he had to be. Um, to be going the extra mile and working hard. And therefore, he, he almost deliberately um, kept the, the, the relaxed, enjoyable, um, cultured self um, very private. 
And um, in mine, I talk about, I mean, I have a whole chapter on hinterland and um, politicians who, uh, Dennis Healy famously, um, I think I enjoyed talking about things I'd done in my wider life, like playing the piano or doing marathons. Gordon felt a sort of sense of, of duty, which meant that he, he couldn't do that. And you know, he was always in a suit and he was always working and when he was off duty, he was, he was very private about that. So I think one of the, the sad things is that uh, the, him, the person, all the way through his time as Chancellor and Prime Minister was always kept very, very uh, private. There's some things you should keep private. I think he was right to keep uh, his children private. But he himself, he never ever felt he could um, open up. Um, publicly, but when you saw him, he was he was always kind what? of fun. He liked to yeah. talk and tell stories. He was and a Jekyll and Hyde behind the behind the scenes. Gordon yeah. could be very very funny, and uh, Damien McBride in his book told yeah. the story of Christmas parties where Gordon got the story wrong every year as he told right. it, and you you all you lot all but, but, but burst on, into but on, on aeroplanes. Yeah. He would always he always thought we should work. Go on yeah. then. You, you've famous. mentioned it. Go on then. Tell Go us on. the aeroplane story because this is a cracker. Tell us the story about you and your one conqueror. Oh, I see. That's, well, that's when you nearly died with Gordon Brown. I actually didn't. Gordon Brown was actually a really interesting person to nearly die with. Um, we, uh, <laughs> I think it was like 2002 or 2003, um, and we were going out to Washington, um, no, to, to New York, to um, and then down to Washington to um, do a um, big kind of financial event. And there was a reason why, which I can't remember, why we had to go on Concord. And um, this is before Concord was put out of um, commission. And it was one of those things where you, you generally only went on Concord if you had to. So I went on it four or five times over the years. And, um, but, 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 it, but it wasn't something you just did because you fancied it. And actually, to yeah. be honest, it was, a kind of, it was kind of an odd experience because Concord, it was a tiny little plane. And it yeah. would whip down the runway really fast and fly up in the air. And everything shook. And you sort of knew you were... Um, you, were, you were living in um, technology which was fabulously far-sighted about 30 years before. So you, it was, it was, there was a certain vulnerability to it. And um, we, were go, we were on the way out to do... To, and um, there, there was a, a, a speedometer and then an altimeter in front of you in this very narrow cabin. And we'd got up to Mach 2 or Mach 3. Is that the Razor? Mach, which is, it's a, a Mach, <laughs> one of the Macs, whichever one you got to. Mach, is it going fast? It was really fast. fast. Yeah. And we're at 56,000 <laughs> 56, feet. And then there was this massive shuddering and noise, like we'd hit a wall. But we were on Concord at 56,000 feet. It was like... <laughs> and people screamed really loudly Did you on scream? this plane. No. Um, but, 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 but nor did Gordon. Did Gordon. We were jolted. And, um, and then in front of us, and the plane started going down, and the altimeter went 55,000, 54,000, it was kind of started going down. And, um, and then the, the flight attendant, the, the, the cabin director, came on and made an announcement. And the, the sort of, kind of the kerfuffle and screaming sort of stopped to hear the announcement. And the announcement was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there has clearly been a major incident. The captain <laughs> is currently trying to identify what the incident is. <laughs> And when he has more information, he'll come back to you, which was the, the least stabilising announcement <laughs> you've ever had on a plane. So down the back... That's worse than down no the announcement. Back, yeah, yeah, they started screaming uh, again. And um, those people who had been enjoying their sort of le leather toilet bag, they, they, weren't, they weren't happy. And, um, <laughs> and the, 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 the altimeter kind of kept going down. We got down to about, about 35,000 feet. And it was going down about every 1,000 feet every, like, 30 seconds. And so Gordon turned to me and said, um, well, this is it. 
And I said... That's his, that's his lovable, <laughs> private, I said, upbeat I personality think, we've heard I so said, much I about. I think you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had this conversation for about, you know, another 10 minutes about, you know, our lives, our families, what we'd done, what we would miss. And we, ha you ha we had the, um, the, the we're going to hit the ground conversation, which lasted, but then it sort of ran out. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we got to, um, and it could about, about 20, 19, 18,000 feet. And there we were. And so Gordon turned to me and said, um, do you think we should finish the speech? <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, no, <laughs> I am not going to spend the last five minutes of my life finishing your bloody speech. Absolutely forget it. So even in that moment, Gordon Brown still thought, oh, I've got working. five minutes left, and we've done sort of life and death and all of that. Maybe we should finish the speech. Again, his mind probably for posterity. And um, luckily at that point, um, the plane stabilised, and it turned out that one of the two engines had blown out in a surge. And this happened apparently regularly, and, um, or, or from time to time, and we limped over to, to New York. But um, he, was actually, he was actually a really nice person to almost die with. <laughs> <laughs> now, at, that, at that point, because you were, you were working for him as an advisor then, yeah. but then, and you, you talk about this in your book, about how then when you became a cabinet minister, yeah. your relationship changed because you had your own domain and you weren't in number 10 all the time. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, you recount, I think it was like five times that he... Yeah. talked about or, or suggested that he might make you Chancellor, but it never happened. I think, actually, the, um, the Chancellor thing wasn't the, the, the problem, um, which I talk about here. He, he, he did come to me on the, um, the day he became leader in July, um, end of June 2007. He, um, having done his speech on stage, kind of ex it was the point where Harriet Harman became deputy, beating yeah. Alan Johnson, Gordon became um, uh, leader of the Labour Party, which meant two days later he was going to be Prime Minister. And he grabbed me and pulled me through a door saying, we must speak, and pulled me through this door. We didn't know where we were going. We ended up in this quite dark um, like kitchen in some Manchester hotel. And he said to me at that point, I've been thinking really hard about, um, and I'm going to be bold, and I'm going to make... Um, David Miliband, Foreign Secretary, you Chancellor, and Jackie Smith, Home Secretary. And I said, well, you know, you know that I don't think that I'm not asking for that. I don't think I'm ready to be Chancellor. I'd done an interview with the Mail saying that um, I didn't think I was ready. But he said he was going to do it. And then, um, and then, um, and then a couple of days later, having, having, after kind of 48 hours of Gordon-style silence, he then rang again, having said, the only thing you should spend the next 48 hours doing is working out who's going to be your Chief Secretary. He then rang me and said, can you come round? And I went round to number 11 and he said, to Treasury, and he said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I just can't, you'll be destroyed. They'll destroy you. And um, foolishly, I never, know, I, I never asked him who they uh, were. Which was I probably, Phil? Probably, probably, you know, I think it was Phil. <laughs> Is that and, why do you think Phil would he... And I then became the Children's Secretary, but that wasn't, that wasn't I mean, it was, it was fine because I wasn't asking for chance. Alistair Darling was the obvious person to be Chancellor at the time, and a number of times Gordon would debate it and then um, not do it. The thing which caused me the bigger problem was um, in the December of that year, when I was about to go on the uh, Saturday, I was going to go on the Andrew Marr show. We were about to publish our children's plan. It was a big our, our prospectus for, you know, kind of education and children's policy. And he called me into Downing Street on the Saturday and said, um, "I want you to give up now, um, being a being the children's secretary and come back and um, become the chief of staff and a cabinet minister in Downing Street, because when we were at the Treasury together at work, you've got to come and do it again." And, um, and I said that I couldn't do it, that, um, that I wanted to help, but 
Um, I'd done that for so many years, and I was now doing this job. And I would, as a politician doing that, it would be impossible. I would be the lightning co conductor, which I sort of was anyway, but even worse. And, um, and, and I, that was the thing which caused real kind of tension, because it's what he wanted, and I didn't deliver. And I felt guilty about that for three years, and part of me still feels guilty about it now, but I just didn't feel that I could. The other, I, uh, speaking from where I am, the other source of tension there, which Ed is far too coy to mention, was that uh, when it came to Gordon thinking about his succession, who was going to succeed him as uh, Labour leader, he sort of took a neutral line between the two Eds, between Ed here and, and Ed Miliband, and the office, uh, the Gordon Brown office became aware that you know, suddenly Gordon Brown was taking a neutral position on the two of them, whereas where everybody in that office regarded Ed as he was as the senior figure in the office. Because so just to, you, you were both, you both worked for Gordon in the Treasury for yeah. years, and we were now both in the cabinet, and then you were both in the cabinet. Yeah. But Ed, Ed Miliband in those days was regarded by those of us in the in the lobby as so far the junior partner to Ed that. It, it, was, it was a very strange thing for Gordon to be doing. Um, and, and when it came to the 2010 leadership election, uh, which uh, David Miliband basically blew, if David Miliband had done however informal a deal with Ed B, uh, with Ed B becoming his shadow chancellor or whatever, David Miliband would have become leader of the Labour Party. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The arithmetic shows it, um, that when Ed pulled out of that leadership contest, most of Ed's MP votes went to Ed Miliband. Had there been Not any... Not pull out, but in, in, the, in the dropout. Yeah, in the, dropped in the vote, out. Yes, yeah, so. dropped out. In the, I in didn't the, pull out, despite, uh, despite some people thinking. You lost, unusually, <laughs> you lost. Um, but um, had, had, had there just a, even a few more votes gone to um, David Miliband rather than Ed Miliband, um, David Miliband would have been leader of the Labour Party. And do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you, it, I mean, what, what were those conversations about well, doing see, a deal? And the, the great irony was that, um, that David Miliband was clearly the Tony Blair candidate. I was clearly the kind of seen as the Gordon Brown continuity candidate. And Ed Miliband managed to come through the middle as neither being Blair or Brown, which, given it had worked for Gordon for um, 15 years, was a hell of an achievement. And David and I were never quite clear how he managed to pull Nobody this off. Nobody noticed, though. And, um, yeah, and then um, if you look at my... I had 40 MPs. They split two to one for Ed. It would only have taken two uh, people who voted for me to have gone to David for him to have won the contest. So it was because of the electoral college. It was that. It was that tight. And I think that Ed spoke to every one of the people who voted me first to persuade them to put him second. And I don't think David did. I think David thought that that would be, you know, too much of a concession, too much of a of a reach. He thought he could do it without sort of reaching out in that in that way. I mean, I was never going to 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 choose between the two of them because I wanted to work for whoever because I wanted to hold the Labour Party together and um, so it, they would, it, so deal is not quite the right word in the sense that um, you know it wasn't like we were going to form an alliance but if David had said you know this is what I intend to do um, that would have been enough and as Phil says in his book um, 
very many senior people were urging David to, to do that or make that statement. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Peter Mandelson, for one, Peter Mandelson was saying to David, do a deal with Ed Balls. And do you think then that David would have won in 2015? Um, I, I mean, look, the nature of politics is that um, you can never know yeah. um, what the counterfactual uh, is. You never know what would have been. So how can you know? Um, I think that David and Ed were more similar rather than more different. And, um, you know, they were brothers. And that was... Um, and, and, the, and, and I think also... Um, the, the, the thing which did for, um, for us in the end of the run-up to 2015 was the, the, in the context of a hung parliament, the idea that the SNP would hold the whip hand in parliament over a Labour prime minister. And I think that would have been a problem whoever was leader of the, the Labour party. And um, I think actually Ed would have did a better job of unifying the Labour Party during that period than David would have done. On the other hand, I think we suffered greatly because we were not, we were not seen as a party which would work with business and wealth creators, which I worried about all the time. I think David would have been in a better place on that. So um, in this balance of things, how do you know how it would have gone? I, I, you can't say categorically at all, but my instinct is that the result would have um, not been different. I, I think he, I, I, I'm not sure I agree. I think David would have looked David Miliband would have looked a credible Prime Minister, whereas Ed never did. And I, I think that was the difference when you come down to how close the result was in, um, in 2015. But uh, we'll never know. Well, of course, if the 2015 result hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had the... I mean, in a, in a, in a difficult year uh, that 2016 has been, the joy <laughs> of a Saturday night <laughs> of... Uh, <laughs> for... For, for political journalists to sit down on a Saturday night with their families with a glass of wine and say, oh, no, it's for work. <laughs> and uh, to delight in uh, Ed Balls doing Lord knows what on, <laughs> on national television. Talk us through, because we'll, we'll come on to questions in a moment, and I'm sure you've all got questions about this extraordinary period in uh, British history. Talk us through why you did it and... I was, I was really struck looking back, because when um, the awful news came through over the weekend where you'd... Uh, awful news. Your, your sad demise. I looked back at lots of the pictures from, to, to do a sort of little montage for the email. And actually, in the first week, you were really boring. You had a suit on and a sort of sparkly tie. And then something happened in the second week with a banjo. And then you were sort of reborn as, as, yeah. as this extraordinary sort of camp character. I think... Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, what the hell happened? I think, well, I think, I think the reality is, for the people who didn't know me, this was a big surprise. And pe people who know yeah, me well, um, <laughs> is how I've always been. So there's, no, there's been no big change. I think, um, I never ever thought I would do this. But when they came to me in this spring, I told Yvette, thinking she, my wife Yvette Cooper, thinking she would say, don't be ridiculous. And she said, of course you've got to do it. She said... Just wanted you out the house? The most, no. She, she, said, she said, I'd love to do it myself. It's the most amazing programme. You will lose weight uh, <laughs> and, um, and learn to dance, which we've always wanted to do together. And she said um, that if you look back in 15 years' time, or you know, and you sort of never know when things are going to happen, if you look back and say, 
I had that chance and I turned it down. I think you'll always regret it. And she said, politics is in such flux at the moment. Just go and do something just for its own sake. And I thought she was mad. Um, but then I, I then spoke to Jeremy Vine, um, the, who had done it last year, and he said it was the most life-affirming experience of my life, and I would absolutely do it again, and you should definitely do it. And um, so I thought about it and thought, well, actually, you know, why not? Because what an amazing thing it would be to step into that world. And um, I, I learned a, a huge uh, amount. I mean, in passing, I thought people were joking that they sprayed on tans. <laughs> but, it's actually, but, but people... This is going to be worse than the Edwina Cummy stuff. People, <laughs> people really do it. And I would go, you know, I actually had a couple. And, um, and people spray tans on. It's amazing. But anyway, put that to one side. In, in, so in the Shocking. Fir, in Shocking. The, and I, so, so if you are... Um, I learned a really interesting thing about performance, which is if you are a politician, although there's a lot of performance... House of Commons on television, live television, all those kind of things. In the end, you're always being yourself. And in that first week, when I, um, I walked out, you know, not totally sure what the hell I was doing here, in a suit with Big Ben behind me to do the waltz, it was me. And I was stood there thinking, and I had refused to have any, not any, no tans, no sparkles or anything. Um, compared to all the other contestants, I looked like the BBC health and safety guy. <laughs> who was saying, yes, you're fit to dance. No, no. And, um, and although the, my words actually wasn't bad, um, I looked like I was... Wow. I, it wasn't bad, um, I'm told. I, um, I looked like I was kind of not really having a very good time, is the truth. And then Darcy Bustle said, the, um, the famous ballerina and judge, she said, you've got to assume a character and play a role. Um, Jeremy Viner said to me a couple of weeks ago, throw yourself into it. And I didn't know what he meant. And I sort of discovered over the next couple of weeks that Charleston, but then in particular, the, um, being the mask and the yellow suit and the green, green face, that you could sort of put yourself to one side and you could perform as a character and you could really enjoy it and have a real go and, um, and, and, and that was a big transformation. I learned a huge amount of perform about performance about that and then of course there was Gangnam which was um, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the week, in the week of the, um, the American presidential election which I thought by the way Hillary Clinton was still going to win until, until about 2.12 on the morning when the, if you remember the the, all the probabilities shifted really hard. On the Monday, Kat, I mean, it was, it's a great piece of music, Gangnam, but not easy to pull off as a dance. And Katya had said Evidently. To me, <laughs> <laughs> all I can say is, I'd like to see you try. And, it's, um, not, it's not that sort of evening. And, uh, and Katya said to me, she said, we've spent Sunday choreographing, me and, because um, it was a saltzer, another choreographer called Jenny, she said, it's going to be epic, um, I believe. And, um, and then after, you know, the, the, and, and the next day we actually did a first go-through and I took it home, filmed it on the iPhone and showed it to Yvette and the family and they all went, what? <laughs> but then Donald Trump gets elected <laughs> overnight. So then on the Wednesday I actually genuinely I went in thinking, you know, we've just elected this guy as president and I'm supposed to spend all day doing the salsa with a 27-year-old Russian. And uh, what, what, what has happened to my, my uh, life? And I had to really kind of think through what this meant. But then on Twitter all that day, there was people saying, 
It's terrible, but at least we can look forward to Ed Balls doing Gangnam on Saturday. And I sort of thought, well, actually, you know, maybe, you know, in a small way, I have a contribution to make still to uh, I public think, life. In, I think in, you in, made a very big contribution the, that week. The interesting thing, just to let you in on a secret, I mean, it's actually quite a hard move. It's what we call the pony, where you sort of jump in and start doing that. And um, although it looks quite dramatic, if you don't give it enough drama, it's very hard for my partner to get hold. Um, so she would actually yell at me during the week that I was giving insufficient oomph to my jump. And could I up it a bit, just to sort of um, to, to lay the gauntlet down to, um, to Matt. And then um, on the Friday and Saturday, all the production people really enjoyed it. And um, so actually, on that, it's, such, it's such a ridiculous thing to say. On the Saturday night, I was about to go on live, 10 million people. I'm thinking to myself, you know, like you know, that lift which didn't work a couple of weeks ago, if I mess this up, before I get to the oomph moment, I'll have really let the nation down. And therefore, I've got to... So I've really, really concentrated on trying to get to the point where it worked. And at that point, you know, when I was, when I was seven or eight in the playground um, in primary school, I think people used to... You know, we used to mess around doing Jimmy Hill beards or um, pretending to be not the nine o'clock news or saying it's Friday, it's five o'clock and it's Cracker Jack. And 40 years on... I get lots and lots of texts and emails from parents saying that their kids spent Sunday and Monday in the playground doing our, gang, our Gangnam model across the playground or across the sitting room. And you sort of think, what an amazing thing to do something which has that kind of reach. It had three and a half million hits on Facebook within 24 hours. And um, I mean, it's ridiculous. It was. But <laughs> at the same time, it brought, um, you know, whether you are because we're talking it very politically here, whether you support Norwich or Ipswich, whether you're Labour or Conservative, whether you're English or Scottish, you could all unite and say, we actually quite enjoyed seeing the ridiculous sight of Ed Balls and Catcher Jones doing Gangnam on BBC yeah, Strictly. Yeah. And that's yeah. rather a nice thing to have done in your life. I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> Can I tell you one other story? <laughs> I, I have to say, my, uh, my seven-year-old daughter, no offence to you, Phil, but my, uh, my seven-year-old daughter was very excited that I was uh, coming to see you tonight and said to say hello to Ed. Uh, so I, uh, I like to think I've... Um, that dancer. I've done that. Now. No, Ed Ball's that dancer. Yeah, who I know from work. The dancer off Strictly. Off of Strictly. But, but, but go on, then. You've got one more story. We need to do some questions. I know. It's actually... Uh, it, it, um, we had our very last night on Saturday, and... Um, it was totally the right thing for me to go out, so no, no issue at all. It was definitely right. The, the others are all much better. But as we were, um, we were going up these rickety stairs you go up before you go out onto the, the actually to walk down the walkway. And we've done that every week now for um, you know, 11 weeks, uh, 10 weeks, um, and 11 including the first show. And, um, and you sort of hang around there and you can hear all the music and the audience is getting built up and there's a comedian guy who whips it all up and the music and then finally it goes live. And as we were standing there on these rickety steps, Katya Jones, my Russian professional partner, turned to me and said, she said, there's one thing I just want to ask you before we go out and do this. And I said, what is it? And she said, it's just one thing I just want you to clear up. This is totally true. In that minute, as the theme music is playing, <laughs> she says, every time the warm-up guy makes a, this joke where he says that um, you think it was bad for Ed Ball's think how much worse it was for his sister, Ophelia. She said, um, she said I don't understand. Yes. <laughs> she said, why is it a joke? <laughs> she said, it's a really nice name. 
<laughs> and I said, well, because you think about it, Ophelia. <laughs> and she said, it's a really nice name. <laughs> and I suddenly realised that, you know, this amazing choreographer, dancer, world champion, you know, she, her first language is, is Russian. She's from St. Petersburg. So I had to say, oh, feel. And at this point, the curtains <laughs> opened. <laughs> and she went, oh, that's why it's funny. And then we went and danced. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> at, that moment, at that moment, I realised that she was actually a Russian dancer. Yeah, and not, not a fan of 1970s carry-on films. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unlike some of us. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.